Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this, uh, this fall, Connie, my wife Connie and I had our 45th anniversary. Yeah. So <clears throat> we took a 10-day trip out west, um, and we had a great time. Um, it's hard to come up with one highlight, other than the fact that we were together for 10 days. And uh, our first stop, though, was, was the Grand Canyon. And, you know, many people who have gone to the Grand Canyon, you know, they have that oh, wow moment when they get there. And it was a little different for us. For us, it was, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Because for the two days that we were there, we, we just walked around the southern rim and every time we stopped and looked at this amazing site, the, per, the view was, was as good or better than the last one. More awesome, more beautiful than the one before. And at one point, Connie, she was so captivated by the, the beauty and the splendor of the canyon, she just said, I want to stay here. <laughs> I just want to stay here. Right. Um, it was a glorious trip, and we had many glorious views when we were out west. Um, and Romans 1 tells us that God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. We see the glory of God revealed in the majesty and the beauty of creation. In Job 26, Job is extolling the greatness of God in creation and his control and his mastery over it. And then he says this about the Lord. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. See, the majesty and the awesomeness of creation reveals part of God's glory, but just the whisper of how great he is, how awesome he is how powerful and holy and glorious and mighty and beautiful God, the eternal God is. And that glory in creation is all around us. You know, one of the benefits of being in the book of Genesis is that it encourages us to think about God 
as the creator of all things and to open our eyes to the glory of all that he has made. And today in our text, we want to look at God's glory, God's glory in marriage. Our Genesis series is entitled Right from the Start because Genesis is the foundational book of the Bible for in it we find the way that God intended for us to live right from the start. In 2022, Louise Perry, who is who's described as a non-religious feminist, wrote a book titled The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, I haven't read that, but I did read uh, some of the reviews of it, including a review uh, by the Gospel Coalition. And in this book, she takes the sexual revolution to task, especially as the, its toxic effect on marriage. And the very last chapter of the book is called Marriage is good. And she advocates for monogamous marriage as the best thing for the benefit of women and children. And I would add for men. See, she discovered through God's common grace the glory of God in marriage that he ordained right from the start. And that's what we want to look at today. For the verses 18 to 25 of chapter 2, we read about the bringing together of the first man and woman into the covenant of marriage. And we see the glory of God, how he ordained men and women to live together in marriage so that he might experience his goodness and carry out his purposes here on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come to you in the name and through the man of sorrows your son, Jesus Christ, the the sinless lamb of God. And we also come to you in the name of the risen and victorious king who triumphed. And we thank you this morning how we, we did have a foretaste of the marriage supper of the lamb, the joy of looking forward to the embrace of our father in heaven at that marriage supper. Lord, we do long for that day. And we also thank you that we can enjoy that fellowship today here among one another and with you personally. And as we look at human marriage, Lord, Holy Spirit, grant us illumination into your great purpose of this so that we might have marriages that glorify you and bring pleasure to you and are fruitful for the good of others. Amen. Well, so the the title of the sermon is uh, The Glory of God in Marriage. The three points are uh, the glory of not being alone. Second point is the glory of being a helper fit for Adam. And the third is the glory of leaving and cleaving. Um, Now, before we get to the first point, let me mention two important considerations. One is that I'm not intending to speak on gay marriage, um, except for right now. I know that's a a big issue in our culture, but let me be clear that scripture gives no place for it. Um, This is true in that it never endorses it, never gives any example of it. It's actually never considered an option because scripture clearly condemns homosexuality, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And in highlighting the glory of marriage, We are declaring what God has set in place right from the start. 
Marriage is between a biological male and a biological woman. And it is the beautiful and glorious thing, and we want to celebrate it. We want to rejoice in this good thing that God has given us. See, God's glory and pleasure are seen in the coming together of a man and a woman in a lifetime commitment of fidelity and love. And husbands, you can just say amen at any time. (laughs) Wives, too. There are genuine, I know there are genuine Christians who struggle with SSA, same-sex attraction. And maybe that's a besetting temptation for some of you. Just as heterosexual lust, sexual lust, can be a besetting temptation for others. This word besetting means to be constantly assailed. So maybe that's something that you continually fight against. Uh, In 1 Peter, he tells us that these passions of the flesh, and there are many passions of the flesh, things like fits of anger, it says in Galatians 5, but also sexual lust. He says that they wage war against our soul. But we are called to um, not indulge them, but to put them to death. And we can do that by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God. But your pastors want you to know that if you struggle in this area, we want to care for you in any way we can. And we want you to be free to talk to us about your struggles and how we might be able to encourage you in the Lord. Also in preparing this message, I was aware of those of you who are single, or those of you who may be in a difficult marriage or have gone through a divorce. Those of you who are single, some of you are very content in your current state, or you're patiently waiting for God's timing in marriage. But also I know that there are others who are single and have been single for a long time, and maybe you struggle in your singleness. To you and to those who are currently in a challenging marriage, I want you to know that we respect your commitment to God that is on display in difficult seasons of life. It's easy to live for God, or it's easier to live for God when everything is going well in one's life. But when one continues to live for Christ in hard times, that brings glory to God. And it also gives encouragement and strength to his people. The focus of the message is the glory of God in marriage, but an even greater focus for all of us as believers is to live every day in good times and in trying times in a way that pleases the Lord. May he help us all to do so. It's really one of the great pursuits of this life to glorify God and enjoy him forever. May God help us do that. Well, after the Lord declares seven times in chapter one that different aspects of the creation were good, he declares in chapter two, verse 18, that it is not good for man to be alone. So right from the start, our creator was stating that man was created for fellowship with other people. And though the context of this is marriage, it is the declarative statement about our need for family and for community. It's good for us not to be alone. It's good for men and women to be in fellowship. And so whether you're married or single, wanting to be married or not wanting to be married, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we all need people. And we were created to exist in community. 
Now, I don't think this verse means it's wrong to be alone or to enjoy being alone or to enjoy solitude. I mean, actually, solitude is good. It's actually, I think, one of the disciplines of the Christian life, to actually have solitude with God in prayer and in his word and in meditation. And we should practice that. I think the, one of the benefits of the Sabbath, we actually have extra time to practice solitude. It's good to be with God's people on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, but it's also good to take some of that time and just be with God and enjoy solitude. Nor is it wrong to be single. Herman Bavink, in his book, The Christian Family, says this, Marriage does not belong to the essence of being human. Although unmarried, Jesus was a genuine and complete human being, and without any defect, he completed the work that the Father had given him to do. Numerous men and women have abstained from marriage and devoted themselves with all their strength to missions and mercy, to science and art, and gave themselves in most valuable service to humanity. In heaven, people will no longer be married or given in marriage. Marriage is thus a temporary provisional institution. But here in verse 18, we read that Adam, before the fall, before sin entered into the world, we see him lacking something. Fellowship with other people and specifically with a helpmate. Now Francis Schaeffer in his book on Genesis talks about this dilemma that Adam faced. He says this, he is alone. Adam, being created in a specific, unique fashion in the image of God, differentiated from all that had preceded him, finds that nothing corresponds to him. In the Hebrew, one can feel the force of this, especially in verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. That is a helper opposite to him. The emphasis here is on the counterpart to Adam, someone parallel to him, yet somehow different. Now we should remember that the context of our passage, of, we should remember the context of it. Um, it's day six of creation. And as Daniel mentioned last week, chapter one of Genesis looks at the seven days of creation from a, a bird's eye view, right? from 10,000 feet up. We have a macro view of the first seven days of creation. But in, in chapter two, it focuses on day six. It's the most important day of the six. For men and women were created on that day. And that, they were the focal point of God's glory and his plans. And so in a sense, in chapter two, we get the rest of the story of the creation of mankind because we actually need chapter one and two together to inform us of what happened on day six. So in verses seven to nine, after the Lord formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life, he placed him in the garden of Eden that he had planted and he told Adam to work the garden and to keep it and that he could eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he goes on to say that it's not good for man to be alone. 
and he will make him a helper fit for him. So if we look at the context, which is chapter one and two, of this statement, it's not good for man to be alone, here are some of the reasons for that statement. And we actually have to go back to chapter one for these. So three points of why it's not good for Adam to be alone, and we find them in verses 26, 27, and 28. So the first one, in chapter 126, it reads, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the triune God was having a conversation. Let us make man in our image. Because from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed fellowship and love with one another. You know, isn't it amazing They got along without us from all eternity. They enjoyed fellowship with one another. And Adam could not enter into that type of fellowship without having other people on the earth. God's will for the human race was to enjoy fellowship among themselves just as the Trinity had and continues to have. So that's the first point of why Adam, it was not good for Adam to be alone. In verse 27, we see the second one. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So it was God's intention right from the start to create mankind in his image via male and female. Because Adam in himself did not reflect the image of God completely. He needed Eve for that. You know, Bavik in his book states that man was the head of his house, of his home, but the woman is the heart of the home. Both men and women are created in the image of God, and God ordained that his image would be more fully expressed in the creation of men and women. Glory to God. In verse 28, we get the third point. The air we see, he gives Adam and Eve dominion over every living thing on the earth. They're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And obviously, he couldn't, Adam couldn't do that, any of that, apart from having a wife and having offspring that would fill the earth and help him to carry out that mandate. So that's the specific context of the Bible's com- comment that it was not good for a man to be alone. Now, if we go back to a more expansive view of that statement, it's not good for us to be alone. We, can, we see that throughout Scripture, God has provided different ways that we can experience fellowship with one another. One is with family, you know, with our parents, with our siblings, with our extended family. And met, most of us are, have experienced that Thanksgiving, right? We're with, with fa- family, and had fellowship with them. Um, secondly, is the community or the fellowship of the church. Uh, the local church, the community of faith, as well as Christians, uh, Christian friends outside of the church. And again, some of you, uh, you were away from your family this weekend, but you enjoyed fellowship with other Christians. And also there are, there are groups in our, cult, in our culture, neighbors, people we work with, clubs and organizations that we can belong to 
and enjoy fellowship and relationship with others, both Christian and non-Christian. And beyond all this is the fellowship that we have with God himself. You know, Jesus said, I will never, never leave you or forsake you. You know, we may lose friends through their moving away or through relational difficulties, or maybe over time we just kind of drift apart. Um, we, can, we can lose a spouse through death or through divorce or through relational estrangement, but we will never lose fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Yes, praise God for that. We can always draw near. This is, this is good news. Christians can always draw near to God through Christ and experience and receive his love. You know, one of the wonderful verses in Proverbs tells us there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that you can apply that and say there's a friend who sticks closer than a spouse. It's the Lord Jesus. And this is where we would uh, disagree with our culture. You know, our culture, the world says sex, whether it's inside or outside of marriage, they say sex is the most important thing. Now, I'm not denying that scripture actually celebrates sex within uh, Christian marriage, but we would say there's actually something more important and more glorious than sex, and that is there's a brother there's a friend who's closer than a brother. The fact that we can, we can walk with the living God, we can know him and experience his presence and the forgiveness of our sins and live for him and be fruitful and have fruitful marriages that bring glory to God. And that is, we can, we can enjoy that here in this, in this life and look forward to life with him after death. That is, is the great glory of the Christian. So there are many ways that we can experience not being alone, but the context of our passage is the marriage relationship. And the Lord has set in place that this is one of the main ways for mankind to experience the companionship and fellowship of another and to bring about his will on the earth. And in this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis it's important to remember that the things that God ordained at creation are extremely important. They're foundational for mankind and especially for Christians. And here, after the creation of the heavens and the earth and the creatures in the sea and on land and male and female being made in the likeness of God, we have the setting apart of man, marriage as a fundamental relationship Upon, among men and women. Glory to God. Now in chapter three, we'll see that sin enters into the world and it affects everything with this curse, including marriage. And I'm not, um, I'm not, I'm not trying to ignore difficult marriages or the, the effect of sin in marriages. You know, in some sense, you could say, if you want to be holy, get married, right? <laughs> Marriage does not cause sin, but it, does, it surely exposes sin in your life. Ask any married person that. Um, but 
Here in chapter two, we have the ordination uh, of God's blessing on marriage, and we want to glory in it. Um, we want to glory in this relationship that God has ordained for our blessing, and we want to allow its original intent to motivate us to the pursuit of God-glorifying marriages. So their second point is the glory of a helper fit for him. In verses 18 to 20, the Lord takes Adam through an exercise of naming all the beasts of the fields and all the birds of the air. And in this exercise, we see as in our own lives, God working in more than one way. Because after the, he takes Adam through this exercises of naming the creatures, and then after it, Adam realizes that as, as amazing as these creatures are, none of them were fit to be the helper that the Lord had talked about. Herman Bavick says this, both body and spirit are so intimately united within the human person that the human person possesses a unique nature and a unique position among all creatures. In a special sense, a human person is a product of God, a person in his image and likeness, his child and his race. See, this points to the glory of God in us as being created in his image. You know, praise God for all the sea creatures and the reptiles and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. They are many, they are, they are diverse, they're complex creatures, but only mankind, only male and female were made in God's likeness. And at this point, Adam was longing for that other person. So what happens? Well, the Lord puts Adam to sleep. We've all been in that place, right? You know, you, you work all day on something and it's just not coming together. You just haven't got the right solution to whatever our problem is, right? And you, you finally just say, you just commit it to God and you say, I'm, I'm going to bed, I'm going to sleep. And then you wake up the next day and somehow God has resolved it for you. We've, I think most of us have had that experience and this is what happened here. The Lord puts Adam to sleep and then he takes one of his ribs and he makes a woman out of, out of it. And then he brought her to Adam. And our, pas our passage doesn't give us all the details how that transpired, but I can see where maybe the Lord didn't say anything to Adam. He just brought Eve to him. He actually walked her down the aisle. It was the first wedding, right? You know that oh wow moment at the Grand Canyon? Well, Adam had one of those when he first saw Eve. Bavik says this, and remember Herman Bavik is a conservative Dutch theologian, and he says, like a whoop of joy, <laughs> like a whoop of joy, like a wedding song, the words came forth from his lips, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Husbands, remember when you first met your wife? Was that an oh wow moment for you? Or wives, was it the same way when you realize that, that 
Maybe there was a chance that your husband was interested in you when you first met him. It's actually to the glory of God when we continue to have those oh wow moments with our spouse, when we are grateful to God for the gift of them that come to us from a loving heavenly father. Verse 18 reads, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now ladies, don't be put off by this word helper. In scripture, God the Father a number of times is called the helper of man. And in the New Testament, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are named helper of man as well. Now obviously, your role in your husband's life is different than the Trinity, but it's still a high calling that you have been given. It is a role, a calling that is both equal to and different from your husband's. Equal in that you were both made in the image of God, both given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And First Peter 3 adds to this that you are a fellow heir of the grace of God. Your role, however, is different from your husband's. Adam was placed in the garden. This is before Eve was created and given the call to tend it and keep it. His wife was called to assist him in that. Here are some of the different ways that other translations describe this word um, for, for helper, for the wife. One, a, su- a suitable helper. A helper as his partner. A companion for him who corresponds to him. I will make a helper as his complement or counterpart. This shared responsibility of God's calling will look different in each marriage based on each one's gifts and personality personality and strengths and weaknesses. And the division of labor in each household will vary. But at the end of the day, it should be the husband leading as the head of the family and the wife following his loving and humble leadership. My wife has a little saying that goes, whatever we do, we do together. Now, she doesn't mean that we're always doing the same thing together, but that our callings as a couple and as a family, we do together. Yes, we have different roles and gifts and strengths and weaknesses, but we're seeking to accomplish the same goal together as a couple and family whether it's our calling as parents or grandparents or being members of the local church or, or caring for elderly parents, we have done those things together. We have done them together in different ways. It doesn't mean a wife doesn't have callings apart from her husband, but I think her role as stated here in Genesis as a helpmate makes her first and primary calling that of working together with her husband to fulfill the call of God in his life and their life together as a couple, as a family. You know, Benjamin last week highlighted in his benediction the woman in Proverbs 31. She was a model of a resourceful, independent, and independent in a good sense, diligent and faithful worker or helper or partner in the calling of her family. 
She's called an excellent wife. Let me give you two other elements that Scripture gives us of this calling of a wife as a helpmate. One is the word companion. It's actually um, used by some translations in Genesis 2. But Malachi 2.14 talks about the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now the dictionary gives us this definition of a companion. It's a person with whom one spends a lot of time or with whom one travels. So we travel together with our spouse through all the joys and sorrows of life. Now we do that with family and with friends, but your spouse is the one uniquely called to share your life together. Here are two quotes about the joy of companionship in marriage. The first one is from a French writer, and he says, a happy marriage is a long conversation which always seems too short. And the second one is from Ecclesiastes. We're gonna, we're gonna actually teach through Ecclesiastes um, later this year. Ecclesiastes is a book about how to live in a fallen world, how to live in, with wisdom and joy in a fallen world. And here the preacher says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, concerning this, this word for, uh, Hebrew, for, Hebrew word for companion, Strong uses the word consort. Consort, C-O-N-S-O-R-T. It uses that as a synonym. A consort is the title for the wife or husband of a monarch. So a royal consort has no constitutional power but supports their spouse in his or her duties as a sovereign. So husbands, you might be the king of your house, but your wife is your, is your queen, and you should treat her that way. Secondly, and this is similar to companion, but different, the wife is called to be his friend and the husband to be her friend. Song of Solomon Chapter five, the bride says of her husband, this is my beloved and this is my friend. What a beautiful description of your spouse. And I want to highlight two verses from Proverbs on biblical friendship in marriage. First one says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And the second one also from Proverbs 27. Oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Husbands and wives, wives and husbands, are you open to hearing both the counsel and the reproof or correction of your spouse? If not, you're missing out on an important avenue of grace. This is part of our calling to give loving and gracious observations and counsel to our spouse. And they must be handled, this must be handled with care and wisdom. Encouragement and praise should be the norm. 
But we are called to serve one another in giving spirit-led counsel and perspective. Perspective that sometimes can sting our pride. There's a lot more that we could say about this, but the question I have for you is, are you open to hearing it? And do you invite it rather than run from it? And remember, I'm not talking about, is your spouse open to hearing your, your correction? No, are you open to hearing your spouse's counsel and correction as well? The marriage relationship is like no other human relationship. Yes, there are different roles for husbands and wives, but this is to be a sacred, loving, joyful relationship and partnership where the two have become one. And that leads us to our last point, the glory of leaving and cleaving. In verses 24 and 25, we read, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, it's interesting that it's the wife who is called to, I'm sorry, it's, it's the man who's called to leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. And I think this has to do with the fact that generally the woman is more ready to leave her family and start one of her own. Whereas the man can be reluctant to do so because sometimes it can be pretty comfortable living as a single man at home. Single men, unless God has called you to singleness, you should be asking the Lord for a godly wife. Now, in different seasons of life, in wisdom, you may need to wait, but even then, you should be thinking and praying about this calling to leave and to cleave. And if you're not ready to be married, and some of you may not be ready to be married, then you should ask yourself, where do I need to change and where do I need to grow? Talk to your parents. Talk to a trusted Christian friend or one of your pastors. And this applies, obviously, to single women in our church as well. John Gill was a Baptist pastor and theologian. He pastored one church for 51 years. Here's what he had to say about leaving and cleaving. And remember, he's speaking to the man because the man is the one who is commanded to leave his mother and father. He says this, taking care of her, nourishing and cherishing her, providing all things comfortable for her, continuing to live with her and not depart from her as long as they live. The phrase is expressive of the near union by marriage between man and wife. They are, as it were, glued together and made but one which is more fully and strongly expressed in the next clause, and they shall be one flesh. And NIV actually uses the word united to. Instead of uh, cleave, it says united to. So just as there is unity in the Trinity, so there should be unity and oneness in our marriage. And yet just as in the Trinity, we remain our own person with our own unique gifts and personalities. How wonderful that is. This leaving and cleaving is to be spiritual, emotional, and physical. 
to enter into the unity of marriage, one must be willing to leave their past behind and to hold fast or to cleave to one another with body, soul, and spirit. This is what makes Christian marriage sacred. It is a setting apart of a man and a woman to one another and to the covenant of marriage. It is both a serious and joyful thing. John Stott, who was a single man, he's an example of a man who gave himself in his singleness to ministry in ways that have blessed the body of Christ in a great way. Speaking about verse 24, when it is quoted in Ephesians 5, writes, there is no reason to doubt that this passage about leaving and cleaving is referring to the mysterious and sacred depths of sexual union. So part of the glory of God in marriage is the sexual relationship which God has ordained to be enjoyed both by husband and wife. The Bible is not prudish about this. Read the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, or Proverbs 5, and you will find Scripture's view on the glory of God in sex. This is very much a part of the cleaving that husband and wife are called to, and in direct contrast to the world's view of sexual immorality, a covenant of marriage where both husband and wife first love God above all things, and out of that love, love one another, that provides a setting for a lifetime of marital happiness, spirit, soul, and body. Glory to God. Well, in closing, let me discuss a few encouragements. First, regardless if you're single or married, seek to make the Lord the love of your life. A great marriage is wonderful. A great relationship with God is better and more important. We, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have both. It will carry you through whatever God's providence has ordained for you. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, having said that, if you're single and you desire to be married, don't give up. But pray. And don't just um, pray general prayers. Pray God-glorifying wisdom-filled prayers for a godly spouse and for godliness in your own life. If you're married, and so this is to all married people, regardless of the state of your marriage, remember that Christian marriage is to be for God's glory and our good. And we must keep it in that order. God's glory must be the main motivation for all of our lives. And one of the ways that we do that is to seek to focus on our responsibility in marriage, not just our spouses, not our spouses, should I say. Now, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, it highlights the ultimate purpose for a Christian marriage. It's the glory of God on display as the husband and wife model the relationship 
of Christ and the church. And at the end of the passage, Paul refers back to our text. It's amazing, both Paul and Jesus in referring to Mary, what do they do? They refer back to Genesis because it's at Genesis, remember, that those foundational truths were set. Paul says, therefore, he's quoting Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, focus on your calling there and your responsibility, and wives, focus on yours. And here are some other encouragements. I'm just gonna move through them quickly. One, pray for your spouse daily, if you don't already. Pray for your spouse daily. Second, make love your great aim. This is true for all of life, but especially in the school of marriage. It is a school, isn't it? First Corinthians 13 is often quoted at weddings and then forgotten. It is, the, it is to be the great instructor of true love, especially verses four to eight. Cultivate love, work hard at it. Work hard at your marriage, it's worth it. Be a learner. You know, over the last few years, we've had wisdom parties for whenever a young man is getting married. And some married men are invited to share with the upcoming groom wisdom from their lives. And what I've noticed from these gatherings is that the married guys like to come and hear and glean from other husbands. And not just the older guys, but from the younger guys as well. It is a wonderful time of learning from one another. And that may be something our home groups seek to do. Especially when the ladies get together by themselves and the men get together by themselves. Talk about the things that have helped you in your marriage and the things that you struggle with. Let's take advantage of the rich treasury of marital wisdom and experience that we have in our church. And if you're struggling in your marriage, get help. Maybe it's getting together with a couple you know and respect. Maybe it's talking with your home group leader and his wife. Maybe it's talking with one of your pastors. Humble yourself and get help. The only perfect marriage is the one that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth between Jesus and his church. Until then, let us seek to grow and enjoy God-glorifying marriages. Amen. Well, before I pray, let me speak to anyone who is not trusted and a belief upon Christ. Um, God's will is for you not to be alone but to come to know him by knowing and trusting his son for your salvation and then to enjoy fellowship with him and with other Christians in this life and in the next. But the Bible says, if you continue in your sins and if you die in your sins apart from Christ, you will be alone from God's love for eternity and you'll actually suffer his wrath. And so just in closing today, I appeal to you, if you're in that place,
turn to God, surrender to him, and put all your hope, because you have no goodness in yourself. None of us do. Put all your hope in Jesus and what he did for us upon the cross. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you. We do look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are not worthy to come to, but our Savior has made us worthy. Lord, let that be the joyful motivation of our lives. The hope, the great hope, the joyful expectation, the celebration with all the saints of God on that day, let us live for that day with that hope in mind. And Lord, in this life, I do pray for those who are single. Grant them continued grace to live lives worthy of you in their singleness. I pray that you provide godly spouses for them, joyful marriages for them that bear much fruit for the glory of God. And I pray for all the marriages here in our church. Lord, let us humbly look to you and seek to grow in our responsibility as husbands and wife. Thank you, Lord, that your word says you give grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves this morning and say, Lord, come and help us. We want to reflect the glory of Christ and his church. Amen.